Okay, so uh, in this uh, lessons that we're learning about spiritual warfare, uh, we are going to, uh, I began with the premise that uh, we are supposed to be on the offense. And so I was going to talk to you today about the sword of the spirit, which is the primary offensive weapon that we've been given. But as I was typing that out, I realized, you know, well, I'm skipping over the other weapons, and they probably need to know a little, little bit at least about the other weapons, and so I'm going to teach on that tonight. Now, a lot of what I'm teaching from, if you took the class with TR and, and uh, Doug, uh, you'll recognize uh, some of this comes from his material, so we just want to thank Rick Renner for the source um, the, of providing us uh, many of these uh, un understandings of what the armor is, but uh, we're going to be looking at spiritual warfare weapons of defense, but there's a caveat in that, is that, and we'll look at that tonight, even though they're weapons of defense, the reason we're having to play defense is because we're moving forward in offense. Okay, so keep that in mind. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, the Bible says put on the whole armor. Sometimes we feel good if we got some of our armor on. But you're not protected if you have some of your armor on. You've got to have all your armor on. Um, I don't know if y'all can figure this out, but I, I could use a little bit more monitor here. So, um, But anyway, so we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Churches, uh, for the longest time, uh, have struggled because we wrestle with one another. And we forgot we don't wrestle with one another. The person sitting in the pew next to you is not your enemy. They shall know your Christians by your love for one another well he sure acts like my enemy <laughs> well, it doesn't matter whether he acts like or she acts like or not your responsibility is to act not like them your responsibility is to act like the Lord well what if they strike me on the cheek turn the other one isn't that what Jesus said forgive one another isn't that what love does love forgives one another for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Again, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And the evil day is not uh, 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 the seven years of tribulation. He's talking about during this evil age where the enemy still has the ability to roam around and roar like a, a you know like a roaring lion okay so so take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and the evil day can also be when you're under attack and having done all to stand firm so the Bible and as we looked at the first time the, the biblical worldview is thoroughly supernatural the Bible teaches us that all people belong to one of two kingdoms the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. If people are not in Christ, they are captive to the power of the enemy, to the power of the devil. God's word gives us a biblical, godly worldview of how things really exist in the world that God created and how God intended the world and his creation to work. A kingdom worldview will shape your vision for Christian living and church life, which is why I truly believe that at some point we're going to have a school 
where we can bring up our kids in a kingdom world view perspective. Biblically, our strategy is supposed to be offensive, not toward people, but towards the realm of darkness. And when I say offensive, I'm not meaning that we put people off. What I'm talking about is that we play offense as in a game, as in a football game. We're not just playing defense, but we also play offense, right? So in the book of Nehemiah, I don't know if you were here when I preached on that series, he was sent by God to build walls around the city. Now, walls are defensive structures to keep the people safe that are inside its protection. However, what we learned was they were building the walls, but the context of having a city that was protected was the mission of Israel to possess the land. You see, we want to build walls of protection, but we forget that our mission is to possess the land. We huddle to, to, be health, to become healthy, to, to uh, become, uh, um, uh, once again, reoriented towards the things of God. We huddle to get information, but we don't lose the perspective that our mission is not here. It's not in the city. We have a safe city with safe walls, but the purpose of it is so that we can gather strength to invade the land. I'm talking to the com, I'm, I'm mixing metaphors. Okay, Old Testament, Nehemiah. You have a city, Jerusalem, where the presence of God was. You build the, 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 the city's defenses up so that the enemy can't penetrate, the enemy can't mess with you, the enemy can't, can't do what he's going to do. But the purpose of having a strong city with city walls is not to stay in the city. The purpose and the context was to possess the land and to move the enemy out. You've got to have a strong fortification. We would call it a beachhead. You've got to have a beachhead in order to move into the land. Whenever uh, um, the, the Allies were moving, uh, they had become involved, the United States had become involved in the war, uh, in World War II, they had to create a beachhead. And that was on the beaches of Normandy. And it cost a lot of lives. But when they took those beaches, they now had a secure foothold. But it wasn't so they could just sit, sit there and dance on the beaches and say, look at us, look at us, we're on the beach. No, it was they knew that that secure footing would enable them to move into the rest and displace the enemy. Am I making sense to you? Okay, so um, in the book of Nehemiah, he was sent to build the walls, but the context was to possess the land offense. In any modern conflict or game that we enjoy watching or competing in, we know that we must defend, but the goal is not to defend. The goal is to win. And you can't win without playing offense. You don't play a game to just not lose. You play a game to win. Now, I know the strategy. Oh, no, we're playing. No, but even if you do play a game to not lose, you don't play the game to not lose. You play the game so that you can win. Why do you think they play a season in baseball or a season in football? Oh, we don't want to go to the Super Bowl. We just want to not lose. No. They all want to win. Their contracts have incentivized 
winning. We want to win. While these weapons listed in, that we're going to be looking at today are all defensive whip weapons, what I'm trying to give you an understanding is, is they're meant to give us protection against the attacks of the enemy that we are driving off our land. It's not their land. It's our land. We've been comfortable with the enemy possessing our land. See, what we've what we've bought into, we bought into the lie that this is our land, everything else is the enemy's. No, that's what the enemy wants you to believe. This is not our land. This is God's land, but so is that. And until we realize that the enemy is on our land, we're going to be comfortable just keeping our little area safe. But being comfortable keeping our little area safe may make us feel better, but it doesn't advance the purpose and the mission that God has called us to. You see, our mission and our assignment is not to make it to heaven. Our destination is heaven. But it's not our assignment. Our assignment is this world. We've made heaven our assignment. That's why we can hide in a church, uh, uh, play uh, religious games. Not us, just people that are watching us. Do the best we can to get along with each other. And if we don't, we go to another church. The goal is to get to heaven. And the enemy is enjoying our land. He's, he is uh, enjoying the bounty of what belongs to us. And when I say belongs to us, I mean God who has given us the mission to go get it. The, the mission is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on, not in the church building, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I was reading something today. I like the way they put it. We have made the assignment, uh, our mission, to go to other lands as missionaries, and that is part of our mission. But we live in a society that is lost. So you can be just as called and sent on a mission by God into the business world. The entertainment industry is just as lost, and you can be sent by God on a mission into the entertainment industry. Government, politics are, well, that's just the territory of the enemy. You know why it's the territory of the enemy? Because we bought into the lie that Christians don't go get involved in politics. I believe God has called some people into the political arena as missionaries to go in there and to redeem and to possess what God meant for us to, to have. Now, we don't use the tools of the enemy. We don't fight like the enemy. We don't do that. What does it look like then? It looks like a Daniel or it looks like a Joseph who understand that authority and power are not meant to corrupt and to elevate the individual, but to benefit the people of whom they've been given stewardship of. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So, while these weapons listed are all defensive weapons, they're meant to give us protection against the attacks of the enemy that we are supposed to be driving 
off our land. So they are defensive in that they give us protection from the counterattacks. But the battle or the context of the battle is offensive in nature. Now, that being the context and setting it up, let's look at, at these uh, uh, primarily defensive weapons that we call the armor of God. And by the way, uh, the context of this is corporate. So it's not like I've got my armor on, everything's good. Well, it's good that you got your armor on, but you're only as protected as the person that you're going to battle with. If one can put a thousand to flight, two can put ten thousand to flight. I may be protected, but my flanks on my left and my flanks on my right, they're being overrun by the enemy. How long am I going to last? It behooves me to understand that we, the context is the church, the corporate, we need to put on the armor of God, right? So stand therefore, the church, Ephesians 6, 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first one we look at is the belt of truth. First of all, the Roman soldier wore a belt, and it wasn't like, like the belts that we were, you know. Uh, we wear them to keep our uh, uh, spandex uh, uh, pants up and keep them from falling, but, you know, it doesn't really work too well. But the Roman soldier wore a belt, and although it was the least impressive and most common place, place piece of weaponry, it was actually the central piece of armor that held all the other parts together because the belt held the breastplate in place. The shield rested on a clip on one side of the belt. The other side was another clip on which the Roman soldier hung his massive sword when it wasn't in use. So I want you to think of the belt of truth kind of like a police belt, kind of like Batman's belt. I forgot what they call that. The utility belt, right? It's a lot more than just keeping his pants up, right? So without it, the other pieces of weaponry would have fallen off the soldier. The belt of truth is the word of God, the written word of God. It is the most important piece of weaponry that we possess. Remember, the Roman soldier's belt held all the pieces of his armor together. He might be wearing all his great weaponry, but if his belt was not in place, everything would fall apart. You know, if you're, you got all your, all, if you're a policeman and you got all your stuff, you know, but you didn't fasten it, you didn't secure it, as soon as you start moving or running or tossing or wrestling, what happens? falls out, and then when you need it, it's not there. Right? So, uh, similarly, when we ignore the Word, we have willfully chosen to let our spiritual life fall apart. Listen, I love you. But you can't live a victorious Christian life simply having worship music on. It is a great thing to do. We're not minimizing it at all. But you must, what we stand on is not worship music. What we stand on is the truth of God's Word. Right? You have to have this. When Jesus was battling the enemy, he didn't put on worship music. Now listen to me. I don't have anything against worship music. I love worship music. I think it's great. What he pulled out was the Word of God. It is written. Right? Well, let me call the pastor. Well, that's a good thing to do. Or let me call uh, one of the deacons. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. 
but the Word of God is available for all of us so that, remember, this is not just the weapons that we wear, it's the weapons we're all supposed to wear. We have been given in this day and time is the privilege, I don't know if you ever read history, how many people were prevented from having the Word of God uh, 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 in their own language to be understood by themselves. People paid a price. William Barclay, William Tyndale, uh, many, many people paid a price that lost their lives because it was actually forbidden to translate the Word of God into a language where people can understood. And when they got the, the Word of God and they would pass it out illegally, much of, I think, is happening today in the, in the country of China as well. And yet we have two Bibles, three Bibles in our house. We have Bibles on our phones. We have Bibles, you know, everywhere. And yet we don't participate. We don't peruse, we don't read, we don't uh, get into it, right? It's kind of like, um, you know, when somebody hasn't had anything to eat, they'll eat anything. But when you are uh, uh, as, as abundantly blessed as we are, we can say, nah, I don't feel like eating that today. I want this. I want. He said, would you like some eggs? Yes. How would you like your eggs? I'd like poached eggs with some, uh, what do you call that sauce, hollandaise sauce on. And if you don't make him that, I'm not going to eat. Whereas if you're starving, eggs, how would you like them? I don't care. I'll eat them raw. As long as I can eat something. The Bible, I think Proverbs says, to a hungry person, even what is bitter tastes sweet, right? So I would, listen, I do not want us to pray for famine. I do not want us to pray that we would go without. I want us to pray that God would help us to learn how to navigate abundance, We can have abundance. God wants us to have abundance, but he doesn't want abundance to have us. So I don't want to not have abundance because I'm afraid of what abundance will do with me. I want God to grow us to a place where we can have abundance and use it for what it's truly for, to be able to give, to share, to, uh, to meet the needs that are ever-present around us. Right? God wants to bless us with abundance. Or he would have said, uh, 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 the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and since that's a spiritual way of life, I'm going to let him have his way. He didn't say that. He said, but I have come, contrast, that you may have life. And what kind of life does he want us to have? An abundant life. What did, what did he say? What kind of land did he say the Israelites were going into? It's a land of famine and a land of barrenness. and a land. No, that was the wilderness. But even in the wilderness, he provided their needs. But his goal was never to keep them in the wilderness. His goal was to get them into the promised land. And the promised land was called a land of milk and honey. It was a land of abundance, right? So obviously, we don't necessarily want to correlate and equate everything with money. But, um, but money is not evil. It's the love of money that is a root of evil. God, the, this world functions on money. It functions on prosperity. It functions, the kingdom of God functions on faith. 
but this world functions with money. But if you go try to rent a lift and say, what do you have for currency? And you say, I have faith, they're going to send you home. We've got to learn how to translate faith into currency. Because there are things that we need to do. We've got to buy Bibles. We've got to buy chairs. We've got to paint buildings. We're going to buy land at some point. We're going to build different buildings. We're going to build schools. We're going to, there are things that need to be done. And how does it happen through finances? And how does that take place? How does it come in our hands? Now, I'm not saying it's all about finances, but it's part of it. How did, how did Ruth and Naomi get out of their poverty was because they had a wealthy relative who purchased their debt and redeemed them and set them free. So don't equate poverty with spirituality. Right? But don't equate abundance with spirituality either. It's not, I have more money, so I'm more spiritual than you. No, I have nothing, so I'm more spiritual than you. We have seen that all throughout church history. What we've got to learn how to do is maintain a right relationship with God and, and let God bless us how he chooses and use it to further the kingdom, not to further our own pockets. Are you hearing what I'm saying? To do his will. Lord, what do you want me to do? I want you to give, I'm, I'm about to give you $500,000. What do you want me to do with it? Thank you, God. My IRA is going to bless you. My retirement account is going to bless you. And God turns around and says, I want you to take that $500,000 and I want you to sew it in to a ministry down here and, and do that. And you go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to happen. That's not going to happen. See, then who has who? What has us? I'm not telling you to do what the pastor said. Don't equate. I'm not telling you to do what I say. I'm telling you to listen to God. It's not, I'm not your master. I'm not your, your overseer. I'm not, uh, I know that has bad connotations, but uh, don't take that the wrong way. I'm not your, uh, I'm not your, uh, what's a better word for this? I'm not your spiritual uh, guru. I'm here to teach you the word of God. You have one master, and that's Jesus. Every servant is accountable to his own master. He's all of our masters. We call him Lord, right? And when the Lord speaks, it's our privilege. Not, I have to. It's my privilege to say, yes, Lord. Why would I do that? Because you paid a price that there's no amount of gold and riches in this world that would ever equate to you giving your life for me. And it's one thing to give your life for someone that's worthy of it. It's another thing to give your life for someone that we might deem good. But it's something else for you to give your life to someone that has sinned and, and, and against you. And we all fall in that camp. For while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So why would I do that? Because the one who is worthy asked it of me. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I know I got off on a tangent. I feel like you guys want me to move on. Let's move on. All right. So the Bible must be the final say-so in our life. 
If we want to walk clothed in our spiritual armor, we must begin by taking up the Word of God and permanently affixing it to our lives. We have to give it a central and dominant role, allowing it to hold the rest of our weaponry together. Second thing we want to look at is the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 6, 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The Roman soldier also wore a second weapon, a breastplate. The breastplate of the Roman soldier was made out of the two large sheets of metal. One piece covered the front of the soldier, the other piece covered his back. And these two sheets of metal were attached to the top of the, at the top of the soldier's shoulders by large brass rings. This heavy piece of weaponry began at the bottom of the neck and extended down past the waist to the knees. From the waist to the knees, it took on the resemblance of a skirt. When a believer knows that God has made him righteous, it doesn't matter how many arrows the enemy shoots against that believer because not one arrow will penetrate. No word of condemnation, no false allegation, no guilty thought will penetrate a believer's heart or lodge in his mind when he is thoroughly equipped with his breastplate of righteousness. When we understand that God has freely imparted righteousness to you and this God-given righteousness now serves as your blessed plate, it will affect the way you think and it will affect your attitude. We will find that our faith rises because an attitude of righteousness imparts both confidence and authority. So before we run out to engage in warfare with the enemy, we must be sure we possess this kind of assurance. The enemy will try to slander and accuse us. He will try to convince us that God won't use us and that no one will listen to us. And that's why it's so vital to know that God has given us a breastplate of righteousness. I'm reminded of David when he went to go take out Goliath. He showed up at the camp, and when he said, I'll fight the enemy, everybody said, oh, who, you're, who are you? You're just taking care of sheep. They, 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 they begin to bring him down. But because he knew who he was in, in God, he didn't allow that to bring him down because, in a sense, he was wearing his breastplate of righteousness. Who do you think you are? You know, I know who I am. I'm a child of the living God. The Spirit of God lives inside of me. I call him Abba, Father. He's my father. I've been adopted into the family of God. And it's not a mistake. I've been chosen of God. You want to know who I am? I'm a, I am a child of a king who loves me and has given me authority to fight in his name for his glory. So when the enemy wants to tell you who you are without God, you tell him who God is that lives inside of you. When we, begin, when we walk through life wearing that breastplate, everything changes for the better. Third piece of equipment, shoes of peace. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the shoes that the Roman soldier wore were primarily made of two pieces of metal. The first piece of the Roman shoe was called a greave. This was a piece of brawn or brass that had been wrapped around the soldier's lower legs. On the bottom, the soldier's shoes were affixed with spikes. Now you might, well, spikes? Well, we, we know that. I mean, don't track people that used to have baseball players used to have spikes you know so it's nothing new you know this uh, um, the spikes on the bottom of a civilian shoes were approximately one I mean of a soldier's shoes were approximately one inch long if however the soldier was involved in active combat the spikes on the bottom of his shoes could be between one and three inches long the brass I think 
uh, some of y'all ladies have a lot of practice. You could probably wear some three-inch spikes without having any problems. But <laughs> I've seen y'all get taller on Sunday mornings. How'd you get so tall? Wearing armor. All right, so the brass greaves enable the soldier to walk through the rockiest of places and not get hurt. Also, the enemy could kick repeatedly at the soldier's sins and his legs would never be broken. Likewise, when you are walking in the peace of God, that peace protects you from cuts, scrapes, bruises, and hurts. It's like a protective grieve shielding our mind and emotions from wounds and fears that it could impair our walk of faith. The sharpened spikes on the bottom of the Roman soldier's shoes also helped hold his footing in place. When a soldier had three-inch spikes on the bottom of his feet and those spikes were firmly planted in the earth, that soldier became very difficult to knock over or to move. And by the way, let me, I didn't have this in there, but let me just also put a plug in for this. Whenever the Roman soldiers would fight, they would create, I don't remember if it was called a phalanx, I'm not sure what it was called, but it was a line. And they would lock shields together and of course they had those shoes on so it wasn't just knocking one soldier over now you had to knock a whole line of shoulders over but they all had their spikes on they all had their sh their shoes were shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and so you could not move them it would take almost an immovable force to move them are you hearing what I'm saying so the devil may attack and attack, but when we have the peace of God functioning in our life, we will never be moved. That peace will hold us in place. Peace is a divine weapon that will insulate us from these vicious attacks, but, and we're not going to talk about this today, peace can also be offensive in the fact that it says in Romans 16, 19, says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. What do we wear on our feet? The God of peace has shot our feet with the shoes of, with our, which are called the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's the peace of God that we use. I have a metaphor, for, I mean, a, a, a alliteration for peace. Uh, it's alliteration. It's the presence of God exercising authority over the chaos in the environment. Peace, right? Okay, so number... Come on. This thing's fighting me. Number four. Well, let me finish that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Jesus completely destroyed Satan's power over you through his death and resurrection. Now our God-given mission is to reinforce the victory that Jesus already won and to demonstrate just how miserably defeated Satan already is. That's what I have a problem with Hollywood. Hollywood tries to get you to believe how uh, terrifying the enemy is and Christians that watch that stuff believe it what we if we were to look into the kingdom of heaven and we were to look into the eyes of God and we knew it is that lived inside of us when we confront the enemy what we don't always realize is that he is terrified of someone knowing just who it is that lives inside of them The enemy may try to lord himself over us, and he may attempt to exert his foul influence in our life. However, most of our attacks are merely empty threats and illusions he uses to feed fear into our minds. 
if Satan can get us to believe his lives, our faith will fade and our stance will waver and he will begin to take a posture over us that does not belong to him. The only place that rightfully belongs to the devil is the small space of ground that is right underneath our feet. The victory is already ours. Jesus accomplished a total, complete, and perfect work on the cross of Calvary and in his resurrection from the dead. Then why do we still have to fight? We're not fighting to win the war. The war has already been won, but we are fighting to bring into, uh, to break down pockets of resistance, to bring them under the auspices of the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So number four, the shield of faith, Ephesians 6.16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. How many of the flaming darts? All. Not some, not most, but all. Man, the attack of the enemy's too much. There's just too much coming at me. Well, the shield of faith. So you've got to learn the word of God. I just saw that just right now when I was, when I was teaching it because with the shield of faith, we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil. And again, if we were all together having our shields locked together, then you have an impenetrable wall that the darts cannot penetrate. We need one another. The Roman soldier also carried a fourth important weapon, a large oblong shield, very large. The massive shield was made of multiple layers of animal hide that were tightly woven together and then framed along the edges by a strong piece of metal or wood. The shield of faith is our way to escape from the fiery darts of the adversary, but understand that your escape is not from battle, but in battle. The shield of faith is our way of escape from the fiery darts of the adversary. When our faith is out in front and covering all, it quenches every temptation and every fire-bearing arrow the enemy tries to send our way. However, here's a crucial point to remember about the soldier's protective shield. It was made of leather, so it could become hard, stiff, and brittle without proper care. If not correctly maintained, over time the leather would have hardened until when put under pressure, it would crack and fall to pieces. If the Roman soldier wanted to live a long life, it was imperative for him to apply oil to his shield every single day of his military life. I was talking to Marty. He used to be an MP in the military. And uh, one of the things they had those guys do, and they had to do it more than the ordinary soldiers, they had to keep their shoes what they call spit shine, right? Now, I don't know what the importance of that was, but I would imagine that in this military, in the Roman military, what they had to do and they would get inspected on all the time was, have you oiled your shield, right? Every single day of his military life, he would be directed to do that until it became a habit, something that he could not go without doing because it was ingrained into him. Because the shield is representative of our faith, this analogy tells us that our faith requires frequent anointings of the Holy Spirit. Faith that is ignored nearly always breaks and falls to pieces during a confrontation with the enemy. On the other hand, when we are carrying our well-maintained shield of faith, this is where worship is really good. But you're pairing worship with the Word, right? So 
how do we, how do we uh, increase the anointing in our life? We turn our eyes toward the Lord. We recognize, we focus on Him. We become what we behold. The grace of God is poured out upon us as we worship Him. On the other hand, when we are carrying our well-maintained shield of faith, sadly Satan's deadly arrows lose their power and fall to the ground. This is why the Word of God commands us to cast down, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but not every thought that you have is from God. And not every thought that you have is from you. Many of the thoughts that you have are from the enemy. Well, how do I distinguish between the two? Several ways. One is when you know the Word of God, you can very quickly say, that ain't God. Why? Because somebody that says I need to get even with somebody, that violates the Word of God. So I know I can, something that says and tries to lead you into sin, you can say, that ain't God. Right? So you learn, you learn to distinguish the voice. Oh, man, I shouldn't be hearing these voices. Well, you know what? We, we live in a world, uh, in, in the natural world, where all around us we have radio waves. And, and if you have the right receiver... And, and, and depending on the receivers, you can actually pick up not only the local state, you could actually pick up, depending on the receiver, you could pick up broadcasts from around the world. Right? Now, we are receivers. And we're all different in how we receive. You have a prophetic bent, your receiver tends to be even a better uh, a quality receiver. Let's just say that. It's not necessarily this way. I'm just trying to use a metaphor like a better quality receiver than someone that's not prophetically bent, right? And so because we pick stuff up doesn't mean the radio is bad. We are receivers. We're going to pick stuff up. The enemy's broadcasting. How do I know the enemy broadcasts? Well, look at Goliath. Goliath, I want you to imagine that Goliath is a spiritual radio station. And what is he broadcasting? And what are the soldiers hearing? The only way the soldiers could stop hearing this was to put stuff in their ears, but, you know, we don't live life that way. And what we have to understand is that you're going to pick stuff up. It's not going to, but the bottom, listen, it's one thing for a bird to fly over your head. It's another thing for, it to, to, for you to allow it to make a nest, in, you know, in your hair. Right? Passing thoughts and fleeting thoughts, they come, and they're going to come from God. They're going to come from the enemy. They're going to come from the world. You have to learn how to go. You know how we swipe, swipe, swipe. No, not going to. No, no, no. Keep that one. No, no, no. How long do I got to do that? That's just a regular way of living. It's just a regular way of life. We do that all the time on our phones. No, I don't want that. No, I don't want that. I don't want delete, block. No, blah, blah, blah. we do it all the time. We don't even give a thought about it. But when it comes to our minds, we think, well, that's, I shouldn't be having that. I just shouldn't be coming. It got there. It's not whether it got there it's there. Somehow or another, the enemy's broadcast, you're picking up, so just swipe, change the channel, do what you got to do. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Right? I've learned some things over the battles that I've had. I used to think, why am I having these thoughts? Am I wicked? Am I in sin? What? No, it's just the enemy broadcasts. And guess what? If you're doing something effective, he's going to mess with you. Right? That's why God gave us the armaments. 
you know? So sometimes it's like if it's pestering me too much, I say, in the name of Jesus, the Bible says this, get thee behind me, you lying devil. I command, I refuse to participate in that thought. I refuse to go in that direction. Leave me alone. And next thing you know, you got a little bit of peace. Oh, there's something wrong with Is there something wrong with me? I don't think so. I'm just fighting the battle that God called me to fight. And I'm trying to teach you how to fight the battle. And the battle is mainly here. How much damage can the devil's fiery darts do to you if we by faith immediately cast them down? That's what the shield of faith does for us. It puts out the fire of the devil's hellish accusations and knocks them down to the ground where the deceptive power ceases to influence us. Um, my brother, when he was alive, my, my, he died at 40, so I, uh, he's up in, with the Lord, so I don't think he's going to get offended. <laughs> Since he's in heaven, he has to forgive me. Anyway, uh, he would, he was, uh, he was uh, you know how the Bible described Ishmael? He was a wild donkey of a man. I was, my brother was like that. He was like all the time, you know, instigating, fighting. He was just always like that. He was just, so sometimes he'd come around, whack, whack, whack. He'd just punch him on the shoulder, whack, 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 punch him on the shoulder, you know. And then when I react, he would say, Mom, look at what Ricky did. Right? That's what the devil does. And then when we react in the wrong motives, I thought you were a Christian. What kind of person are you? You know? Because, because you're, you're reacting. You're not being proactive. And that's what he wants you to fall into. That's how he wants you to, to function. But he's constantly jagging, harassing this so you can get your attention on that and get your eyes off the Lord. With our shield of faith, we keep our eyes on the Lord, and we cast down the fiery darts of the enemy. We have to keep our faith strong with a daily soaking in the presence of the Holy Spirit and in the water of the Word. Then we have to hold our shield up before us continually so that it covers and protects every area of our life. You've got to have your shield up. You can have a shield, but if you don't keep it up, there are times when bad things happen to righteous people. Not just good people, righteous people. The Bible says when the storms of life come, we go through stuff, right? And immediately the thought is, why am I going through this? God, did I do something wrong? Don't you love me? You don't love me as much as when my house flooded over there in Richwood. You don't think those thoughts were bombarding me? Why did my friend, who's a Christian just like I am, and he lives two houses down, why did his house not flood and mine flood? Did I do something wrong? Am I, you know, am I in, living in sin? Why? You know, all these thoughts come, and, and you know what? You, you just have to fight those with the Word of God. No. Sometimes stuff happens. All I know is, uh, uh, you know, what did Job say? Uh, naked I came into the world, naked I'll be depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Am I only going to bless the Lord when good things happen, or am I going to bless the Lord at all times? The Bible says, bless the Lord at all times. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. So sometimes when some bad things happen, you've got to learn how to live with mystery. You've got to learn how to trust God in the middle of it. God is faithful. He will always be faithful. And you've got to say, what an opportunity for me to rejoice the Lord when everything around me is telling me not to. When I don't feel good, 
I began to quote the Word of God. I'm going to live when I was really going, I'm going to live and not die. I'm going to do better today than I did yesterday. I don't care what's happening with my back. The Bible says He forgives all my iniquities and heals all my diseases. You don't think every once in a while I wonder, why is it taking so long for me? And other people get it right away, of course. But I have to cast that down. I have to hold up the shield of faith. And I have to, 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 to try to uh, extinguish those fiery darts of the enemy because the battle is in the mind. Obama says, the devil prowleth around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing this, that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same, basically, battles. What we go through, what I go through is not uncommon. The enemy wants you to think, well, you're the only one going through it. No, we all go through the same thing. We just don't all want to talk about it. You know what? And I just decided I'm going to talk about it. Because how can I help you if you don't know that other people go through the same things? Right? And I'm just sitting here trying to hide my weaknesses. The enemy knows my weaknesses. Or hide my battles. How does that help you? You need to know. Because more than likely, the things that I'm going through, you're going through. You won't admit to it when you're in a crowd of people, but you get alone and you say, yeah, going through the same things. All right. And I think we're almost done. The helmet of salvation. The fifth weapon the Roman soldier wore was his helmet. This piece of armor protected the soldier from receiving a fatal blow to the head. Satan knows that if he can seek control of your thought life, he can then begin to extend his influence to other areas. To protect us from such attacks, God has given us a helmet of salvation. The fact that Paul likens salvation to a helmet means that we must learn about our salvation and find out all that it includes. Once the knowledge of our salvation and all that it is becomes a part of us, it won't matter how hard the devil tries to hit us. We will know what Jesus' death and resurrection purchased for us. When the helmet is firmly affixed, the devil's strategies to take your captive to take you captive cannot work. That is why salvation is depicted in Ephesians 6 as a defensive weapon. It's a weapon that protects your mind from such hellish assaults. With the weapon of salvation firmly in place, we will be completely surrounded by the undeniable truth of all that is ours in Christ. The devil wants to rob us of every blessing that God has prepared for you, so it's up for us to fill our minds with all that God has done for us. All the promises of God are yes, to which we come into agreement by saying, Amen. So be it. Let that knowledge of salvation and all of its benefits become like a helmet to protect our minds from the attacks of the enemy. Paul, when he prayed for the, he, uh, he, when he was talking to the Ephesians, he prayed for them. He said, this is how I pray for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. All that was accomplished at the cross of Calvary. All that is included for us in our salvation. He wants us to become knowledgeable of it. He wants us to become aware of it so that we can walk in it and, and walk protected from the attacks of the enemy. We will become so convinced of our salvation and all of its benefits that our minds will be able to rest securely in God. Those areas in our thoughts that the enemy used to attack regularly will no longer be attackable. So to conclude, well, anyway, James... Uh, uh, no, I went to the wrong. To conclude, 
this thing, I'm going to have to restart it again. The Bible teaches us that all people belong to one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. If people are not in Christ, they are in the power of the devil. Is that not blunt enough? A biblical kingdom mindset is one that depicts the believer in the midst of a cosmic battle. It's not a battle for victory, but a battle from victory. When you become a Christian, if we don't tell you and you don't become aware of the fact that as you sign up to become a follower of Christ, you sign up to go to battle. The big lie is that you can become a Christian and not fight. And that's why we don't live overcoming Christian lives. Paul says, uh, I've fought the good fight. Right? Fight the good fight of faith. It is a fight. It is a battle. But remember, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rules, spiritual wickedness in high places. A biblical kingdom mindset is one that picks the believer, depicts the believer in the midst of this cosmic battle. It's not a battle for victory, but a battle from victory, from what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary when he defeated the enemy, uh, when he died, was buried, and rose again, and seated us in heavenly places in Christ. Our strategy in this conflict that we've been thrust into has traditionally been purely defensive. What we have been learning is that biblically our strategy is supposed to be offensive in nature, not towards people, but towards the realms of darkness. In order to carry out this offensive strategy, God has given us His people weapons. While these weapons we focus on today are mostly defensive in their makeup. They're meant to give us protection against the attacks of the enemy in the grand overarching context that is offensive in nature. That big biblical kingdom pictures that we are to be driving the enemy off our God-given inheritance. Like the Israelites of old, we are to move the enemy off our land. So while the weapons are defensive in that they give us protection from counterattacks, the context of the battle is offensive in character. We should have such a mindset of the kingdom that when we drive around our city, if there's, an, if there's a corner where drugs are being sold or an area where prostitution or we know these things are happening, instead of running from them, we should say, that area belongs to God. We need to do something about it. Let me call the police. Let me call the National Guard. No, that might be part of it, but the reality is we. What can I do about it? And in that the question that Gideon had, almighty, valiant war, what, me? I'm the least in my tribe. I'm the least. I'm, I'm hiding out here. And, he said, and, and, and the Lord said, no, I'm sending you. What can I do about it? In your, in your own strength, you can do nothing. But if God be for us, who can stand against us? We just need somebody willing to say, Lord, here am I, like David did. Use me. You anointed me for such a time as this. Amen.